0: Well, hello once again and welcome to the show. John Skulls here along with lawyer, Kira C. Sanfieri to and LLP. Chris Justice is taking all the calls today. As we get into another hour of employment law, things you need to know if you work, which the vast majority of us do, these are things you should be uh, well equipped and well learned about his employment law because it can protect you if you know exactly what to look for. That's what we open up that can of worms every week on this show. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, common mistakes made by employees and then made by employers. And we'll move on uh, if we got time at that point. If you want to send an email along, we'll uh, see if we can get to a few of those. That would be help at employmentlawyer.ca and anytime to reach out to Chris and his team, one 821 5900 But before we get into our main topic, Chris, we always start off with the week that was, pal. What is cooking?
1: Yeah, so uh, as far as this week's concerned, I got a couple of stories in the news. The first one uh, today has to do with Elon Musk and Twitter. Hmm. I'm not sure if anyone's heard, but there's been a bunch of notifications or announcements that – the Twitter employees will have to decide whether or not they want to work uh, very long hours or resign from their positions and receive a small amount of compensation. And so I thought this would be a good time to sort of bring up some issues with respect to whether or not employees have the right to, first of all, refuse overtime, and also whether or not these actions or these requests, um, in this case on on behalf of Twitter, whether they would uh, be considered a substantial change to the terms of someone's employment. So you know, as far as employers like Elon Musk and Twitter demanding that their employees work overtime, uh, at least in Ontario, uh, they do not have the inherent right to implement overtime for employees unless they have the consent of those employees. So employers are certainly uh, within the right to ask that their employees work overtime um, or, or maybe overtime could be uh, or could have been agreed into a contract. Uh, but it is going to ultimately come back to whether or not there's some form of consent, whether it's you know, something signed or, or maybe something negotiated as between the employee and the employer. Um, now in terms of employees actually refusing to work the overtime uh, again, they can't be forced uh, to work overtime unless there's an issue of consent there. And they can uh, in a lot of cases, therefore refuse the requests made by their employer to do that and in the case of Elon Musk and, and Twitter's supposed ultimatum, uh, this increased workload, you know, by virtue of extending the hours uh, without any change in compensation, which is also important, uh, could lead to, as, as many know, uh, the term constructive dismissal, mm-hmm. uh, which would be a significant change to the terms of the employee's employment and could essentially amount to a breach of that employee's contract. So. I guess I say, I thought it was a topical thing to bring up and, and something important because I know a lot of people get approached, whether it's with respect to overtime or other changes to their employment. and So they just need to know that they do generally have options. They can push back. Um, and ultimately, if they don't want to accept it, they have they have a good chance of being owed quite a significant or at least potentially significant amount of severance pay, um, which, as we know, is based on somebody's age, the length of service they have with the company, as well as the position that they hold.
0: It's an interesting story because uh, the fallout from this will look very different depending on what side of the border you're on, correct, with the uh, employment laws or lack of them on the state side compared to the robust ones we have here. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in my experience, I I deal with U.S. uh, counsel, U.S. employers, and there definitely is a huge difference with respect to both U.S. and Canadian law, which I find tends to at times lead U.S. employers or at least employers based primarily out of the US to think that they can get away with certain things or to think that they can um, only offer somebody a very minimal amount of severance, whereas you know Canadian law would say something much different. So um, that's that's definitely one thing to consider. And then the other thing too, and I've talked about this uh, before, is where employees may work for, let's say, a US based employer. But the employee, him or herself, is always working in mm-hmm. Ontario or in some yep. sort of province in Canada, which even though your employer may be U.S. based, you know, a lot of the, the factors are, are going to be more um, uh, sort of relatable, I guess, to Canadian law versus U.S. law. So sometimes there's a bit of confusion and, and it can get a bit tricky, um, but I think that's all the more reason why employees that are in these types of situations or employers, for that matter, uh, should reach out to a lawyer and get some legal advice.
0: What's the uh, what's the other matter you want to talk about, pal?
1: Yeah, the other one has to do again with another story in the news that's uh, come out recently. And, and as many know, there was the uh, the QP strike uh, in Ontario. And I thought that this would be a good opportunity to sort of uh, talk about uh, what rights working parents have and how that sort of um, gets gets factored in when it comes to the workplace, when it comes to things like strikes. Uh, Because I've had a lot of people since the strike stuff has come up, come to me and ask me a number of different questions. Like one of them, for example, would be, can I bring my kids to work during a strike if it happens? Uh, And and generally speaking, if you're in Ontario and you're a non-unionized employee, uh, you don't have the inherent right to bring your, your children to the workplace. That's typically something you need permission from your employer on. Um, however, having said that as a short term solution, your employer, your company may allow you to bring the kids to the office if you can't find suitable uh, child care during the strike. But then I think it'll come back to how long is that arrangement going to go on for? And, you know, the reasonableness of, of an employer's decision could you know sort of deal with that issue specifically. Um, another question I've been asked by a lot of clients or, or potential clients of mine is whether or not an employer has the, has the ability or or whether employer should rather give them time to find childcare services during the strike, or maybe even let them work remotely while they're um, looking after the kids. Mm -hmm. And the short answer to this is yes. You know, the human rights legislation in this province uh, does protect non-unionized workers, first of all, from discrimination on the basis of family status. And your employer is also generally legally obligated to accommodate your job duties, if they happen to clash with your responsibilities as a parent or a caregiver. Um, so if your children, for example, are suddenly unable to go to school during the day, generally speaking, your company has to provide reasonable accommodations that would allow you to keep working, but also ensure that, of course, your children are cared for. Um, but again, there's, there's gonna be a balancing act here where the employer of the company will only have to maybe go so far to accommodate you uh, up to the point of what's called undue hardship. I don't know if a lot of listeners have heard that phrase, undue hardship before, but that's kind of the point where an employer can say, okay, we've accommodated you, but now we're suffering undue hardship. And I think a key thing people have to remember is just because there's an inconvenience to an employer or because an employer maybe suffers some hardship by having to accommodate someone's, uh, let's say, childcare uh, capacity – Um, That doesn't allow them to just refuse the accommodation. There there really has to be a significant amount of hardship. And I find that in my experience, a lot of times people will have the request for accommodation rejected just simply because the employer doesn't want to be inconvenienced. Um, So I think that's, as I say, a very important thing to keep in mind of.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, probably it's a, it's a curve or a sliding scale, I guess, as to what would be right. appropriate, what would be too mm-hmm. much. Yeah, changing someone's shift or giving them some work at home opportunities is one thing, as opposed to, you know, having to build them a whole new wing with an elevator. I mean, that's beyond hardship, but I guess it's right. uh, case case by case, right? But uh, but there you go. Anytime, by the way, any of this uh, discussion, you want to reach out to Chris and his team, you can do so. 1 821 5900. That's to reach Chris at the firm and help at employmentlawyer.ca. Our yeah. uh, first topic for the day, pal, is going to be common mistakes made by employees this time. We'll tackle employees. And the first one you kind of alluded to, and that's failing to seek legal advice with respect to employment. Everybody goes to a friend, their neighbor, Steve, their uncle who lost her job one time 30 years ago, uh, or Google, they go to Google Law School, which is the worst thing you can do. But uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it seems pretty common sense to, to say that someone should seek legal advice. And and there certainly are a lot of people who do seek legal advice, but there's also a lot of people who simply don't. And I mean, for every person I talk to, I can only imagine that one or two or three more just haven't spoken to a lawyer. Yeah. And they could be dealing with issues in their employment, whether it's going into the working relationship, whether it's something they're dealing with in, in the middle of their working relationship or on their way out. Um, I just think, you know, 99% of the time, you know, there's going to be a huge benefit in getting legal advice. And yeah, I just want as many employees and individuals to be aware of that and try to seek legal advice, you know, when they are encountering these situations, because, you know, it could be maybe you're dealing with a demotion or a decrease in hours, or, you know, human rights issues or accommodation issues, like I just mentioned a second ago. Um, And you could have a ton of different options or, or possibilities, but you know, you just simply don't know. And then God forbid you take certain actions or you make certain statements to your employer that kind of just make it more difficult later on if an uh, employment lawyer is going to come in and try to rectify or fix the situation. And, you know, this decision not to seek legal advice could be huge, um, especially when it comes to human rights matters, uh, for example, because there is a limitation period with human rights issues. Generally, people have one year after whatever alleged human rights uh, incident occurred to bring their case forward. So if they miss that year mark, now, even if they do have a very legitimate case, they could be you know, just simply time barred. And that's with respect to human rights. Generally speaking, people have two years to sue a company or commence some sort of legal action um, before they can no longer be able to do that. So just from a timing perspective as well, you know, seeking legal advice sooner rather than later is going to be, you know, potentially hugely beneficial to, to individuals in these cases.
0: Do you think part of the reason is people have this misconception or the wrong information about, oh, I'm going to see a lawyer. It's going to cost me a lot. You know, there's no just, like, I can't just phone them and have, I uh, get some some free advice or it's going to end up in a long, arduous court battle. I mean, that's right. probably part of the
1: reason. What do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of situations, like for example, that my firm can offer mm-hmm. where we can have free consultations with people. And even if it's just a matter of talking for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, Um, you know, that can just open someone's eyes to all these different possibilities. But even if someone has to pay for a consultation or pay some money, speak to a lawyer. I mean, first of all, you could be saving yourself thousands or tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars down the line or um, by not seeing a lawyer and maybe spending a little bit of money to to get a sense of what your rights are. You could be foregoing potentially tens or hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands of dollars, too. So I think as much as people may be reluctant or hesitant to sort of engage in that process, I think at the very least, in a lot of cases, it's deserving of an initial consultation. And then from there, we can assess sort of, you know, how far we take it, whether it's worthwhile, um, and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, for anyone who's sort of uh, on the on the border of whether to do it or not, uh, I would definitely recommend they do so because, as I say, they're not even realizing what's potentially at, at gain here or could be lost.
0: Common mistakes made by employees. We continue that conversation after a short break. We continue with the Employment Law Show. Hang on. All righty, back at it. Thank you for joining us. Employment Law Show. John Skulls here as always. And Chris Justice, courtesy of Sam Fear to Mark and LLP, is a uh Doing all the heavy lifting on the show today. You want to reach out to Chris anytime, 1-855-821-5900. Have the option of help at employmentlawyer.ca. And the website you always go to, even before the phone call, you'll probably discover 99% of what you need to know. It's a great one. called pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. You'll also have access through that website to the severance pay calculator, which does exactly what the title says, man. Calculates your severance to a a very accurate degree. Maybe a surprising number at the uh, bottom end when you do all the uh, 30 seconds of work that it requires. Requires anonymously, but uh, there you go. It should be used even before you reach out to uh, Chris for that initial conversation. But common mistakes made by employees. Number two, Chris, failing to address issues as they arise, letting it fester. What do you think about it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Definitely another major mistake I find employees make. Um, You know, one classic example uh, that I often encounter is where an employee will be, you know, working their job. And then at some point, they will be subjected to some form of harassing or bullying behavior. Now, this could be by another coworker, like a manager, even someone they report to. And it may not just be one incident of harassment or bullying, but there might be several comments made. Um, Usually, these things aren't recorded in writing. They're, They're often just verbally said. And at some point, the person comes to me and says, you know, enough's enough, I want to get out of here, the workplace is toxic, you know, I'm leaving. Uh, they're intimidating me, they're harassing me, they're bullying me, you know, et cetera. So um, the issue, though, however, is that the employee in this situation um, a lot of times does not bring those issues to light, does not address those issues with their employer. They, they may have some discussions with some of their colleagues, but it's sort of, you know, on a more informal basis, um, and there, there is an issue when it comes to the the documents, the the, the record, um, you know, the the issue is oftentimes, you know, had this person had written documentation of conversations um, where they can show that they address this behavior as being unwelcomed uh, or had the person submitted an internal complaint, which would then have you know, typically forced the company or the employer to investigate the complaint, had these things done, uh, been done rather, um, then they would have a much more uh, a much greater chance of success later on if they were to, let's say, bring a human rights complaint to the tribunal or if they were to commence a lawsuit for human rights related uh, reasons, due to harassment, et cetera. And so failing to address issues as they arise, failing to um, make your voice heard, failing to go through certain channels, you know a lot a lot of times, of course, companies are going to have, or at least they should have uh, anti-harassment policies in place by law uh, and and so these policies may dictate you know what people should do or, or or where people should go to address these sorts of concerns and if they don't do that and then later on I'm trying to help them it just becomes oftentimes a battle of he said she said and yeah. even if there is an acknowledgment by a judge or by a tribunal individual uh, to say that you know certain comments were made that that weren't supposed to be made then making the next step to say, well, therefore it's discrimination or they, or the company knew that these were um, unwelcome comments or ought to have known, you know, if you haven't already brought that to light, it's just going to make your case a lot more difficult. Even if what you're saying is 100% true, the issue is oftentimes trying to convince a judge of what the truth is, not necessarily what the truth is. You know, it's going to come down to a credibility contest. So yeah, definitely you want to address issues as they arise. And if you're an employee who, is wondering maybe how best to address the issues, then absolutely get in touch with the lawyer, get some advice, have that lawyer kind of maybe put together a little game plan of how you're going to do it, what you're going to say. Because again, you want to be careful too about what you say and when you say it, because that could also you know, detrimentally affect the case potentially as well.
0: I think it's a, I think it's a strong point, Chris, because quite often what's going to happen is if you don't work for a <clears throat> very large, robust company with a middleman being the HR uh, portion of the firm that you can go to maybe it's your direct right. boss that you're supposed to to talk to because they're the one that's that's causing the issue and a lot of people are going right. to be really hesitant to do that because they see and work with this person every day there's no buffer zone of you know yeah. hr
1: on the third floor right exactly exactly yeah yeah a lot of people come to me and say well my harassment policy says i'm supposed to um you know present my complaints to my direct boss or my manager but that's the person who's harassing me so what do yeah. i do and and a lot of times there are sort of i guess backup protocols in place for stuff like that but in other cases people just simply don't go that far and they just think well this is the person i'm supposed to report it to and you know uh i didn't want to report it to them so i didn't report it to them or they yeah. tell me you know there isn't much of an hr division or you know maybe the hr is siding with the manager and then for that reason they're fearful of reporting it to anyone but again if you don't report it Then that just gives that company or the employer the out to say, well, we didn't really know. We didn't fully appreciate it. You know, had you said this or had you done that, we would have fully investigated. And as much as one may think that's not a good excuse or justification, uh, it could be what turns the tide in favor of the company, you know, a year or two down the road.
0: We continue with common mistakes made by employees. This one we keep hammering home, and that is failing to keep a paper trail. You did mention that he said, she said problem. If enough is written down, you always document everything, right?
1: Yeah, or you at least try to document as much as possible. I mean, we just a second Mm -hmm. ago were talking now about harassment, bullying situations. But there are other situations, other claims uh, that can be measured. Uh, For example, overtime that might be Right. Yep. Or maybe if your termination is a result of performance-related issues, I mean, having a written documentation uh, or written papers or records to support your case are oftentimes going to be critical. You know, an employee simply, for example, can't support a claim that they're owed 400 hours of overtime if there's no records of that time being worked. And, and that's oftentimes another issue I come in, into, um, I address a lot is, is people saying I'm owed X, Y, Z in terms of overtime, but then how do we prove? You worked all these hours. You know how do we prove the the dollar amounts that you're saying you're owed? Because oftentimes the employer is going to say, "No, we didn't uh, let you uh, work it, or we didn't agree to you working it, or no, that never happened. That's not true." And these employers aren't likely going to dig up information to, to present your case for you unless they're absolutely required to do so. So even if someone, an employee, is able to get uh, that kind of thing ordered. Um, The enforcement of it can be difficult. Of course, you've oftentimes got to go through litigation itself to to get this production of records. Um, So, you know, keeping a paper trail is absolutely fundamental in a lot of cases, Uh, as I say, whether it has to do with bullying, whether it's performance issues over time, etc. Because again, you're back to that he said, she said scenario. And that's just ideally, you know, not the situation you want to be in if you're going to be a successful litigant, should you have to go that that far.
0: So when you say, you know, paper trail, I'm using quotation mm-hmm. signs, that could be something as, you know, a simple email saying, you know, just to just to confirm that earlier today, you know, we went through this, I felt very uncomfortable, you said this, or just right. so you know I worked <clears> these <throat> hours yesterday, boom, send it, send it to your supervisor, or however you're supposed to, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I have situations where people come to me and say you know, Hey, Chris, I'm, I am I tried to get my employer to put something in writing to confirm this, but they just don't want to do it. They keep having phone calls with me or they, they just don't want to put anything in writing, whether it's an email or not. And oftentimes I'll say to them, well, if your employer is not going to do that and you're requesting them to confirm certain things in writing, then, then you may have to do that. You, know, you may have a conversation with your boss where you guys talk at length about certain issues, let's say relating to performance or relating to overtime. And maybe your boss, your manager, agrees with you on certain things, like yes, you are owed this, or you are correct. Actually, this criticism was unwarranted. You know, they may not, as I say, want to put that in writing. But after that meeting's held, number one, you could either take notes at the time, contemporaneous to when that discussion happened, so it's fresh in your yep. mind, or at least later on you can refer back to a note because you know memories fade. And then number two, You could say also after a meeting like that is held, you could write a letter to your employer and say, you know, just to confirm, you know, you and I had this discussion in your office at 2.30 in the afternoon. You know, this is what we discussed. You know, please confirm receipt of this email or, or whatnot. And at least, you know, maybe you're having to do a little work for your employer, but again, you're making a note at the time that that event occurred and later on when the production of documents might come out. At least you're going to have that rather than having to rely on your memory and think about exactly what might have been said or, or verbatim what might have been said, kind of avoid that whole, again, he said, she said issue.
0: That that one piece you just said in there, if you could uh, confirm that you've received this, if that doesn't happen, people mm-hmm. are going to get nervous saying, you know, I sent an email and my boss or supervisor, it was crickets, I never replied. Is that right. okay?
1: Well, I mean, it's not ideal. I mean, obviously, you want your employer to say, yes, you're correct, confirming receipt of this email, or yes, that is my understanding of what we discussed as well. But if you send an email like that to your employer and there are crickets, there's no word, again, getting a copy of that uh, for a later date you know, is going to be a lot better than just simply not sending anything or just hoping and praying that your employer um, puts whatever you want to be put in writing. So again, not ideal, but at the very least, something you should be doing. Because it's going to be a lot helpful, as I say, later on down the road. And
0: I guess kind of the rule that if, if you don't get a response, silence is the same as acceptance. So, okay, you didn't rebut what I just sent you. So, I guess you agree with it because you never responded back.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that that's a situation that will often occur where there are performance-related allegations made. Um, somebody may disagree. They, they may completely object to what's being sort of launched at them. Um, but they don't say anything they don't, or or they do, but there's no proof. And then the employer says, well, we didn't hear from you. We just thought that you were agreeable to that because if you weren't, we thought you would have let us know. And as as you say, silence um, can be sort of condemnation. You can be acquiescing to certain things by by just being silent. This doesn't just have to do with making a record trail or anything. This has to do with anything really. Anytime an employer comes to you and says, we're changing this or we're changing that and you don't want to do it, but you're also fearful of losing your job and you just kind of work through it and you, you know, you're a team player and you, you accept it mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better All word, that, accept yeah. it by, by not saying you object to it. Then later on, if you say, well, actually, I didn't agree to that. Well, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 months have passed now and there's been no formal objection on the record. The employer is just going to say, yeah, we we fully expected that this wouldn't be an issue. You didn't raise a stink. You didn't cause, you know, you didn't you didn't object at all. So we took your silence as you condoning the change, you accepting it. And, you know, if that's not yeah. what you want. And absolutely, you need to speak up.
0: Let's get to one more of these before we break. We're talking about common mistakes made by employees that is signing on. This one, this is where the rubber hits the road, baby. This is the money right here. Signing off on in an inadequate severance package. Brutal.
1: He, Yeah, I mean, I I probably say it every time I'm on here in in one form or fashion, but this is definitely at the top, if not, you know, the number one mistake employees make is is signing off on an inadequate severance package, which, of course, most people might sign it thinking it's not inadequate. You know, the the severance package may say, you know, this is what we're uh, obligated to provide you under the law. And so here you go. And then they think, okay, they're complying with the law. That seems above board. But the law only really guarantees a certain minimum amount. You know, the law may say you're only at minimum owed eight weeks of severance, but then you know your potential could be two years. So people definitely don't want to mistake what the law uh, provides for at minimum as being a fair and mm-hmm. reasonable severance package. And yeah, I mean, once you sign off on a package, the the, the idea that you can then go back and Uh, cancel that signature or or reverse that action is going to be next to impossible. And then all of a sudden you're no longer going to have a claim for any, uh, or an entitlement rather to any further severance. You're not going to be able to bring any human rights complaint because oftentimes severance packages will say you can't bring any complaint, whether it's employment, human rights, just anything related to your employment. So that's a huge issue. And, um, so then you're kind of stuck, you're stuck with whatever that package offered. And even if you have a great case, you know the, the the company is just going to hold up the piece of paper that you signed in front of a judge and say, "Look, Your Honor, tell this person to go away. They've signed a full and final release here, and in yeah. all cases or in most cases, that's going to be upheld. I mean, the only way generally someone can sign a release or, or sign off on a package and then have any chance of backing out of it or, or saying it's not fair is if maybe, for example, they were put under a lot of pressure, a lot of duress to sign it. You know, maybe someone on has the given spot a right? package. Right. Yeah. Someone's given oh. a package like Friday and told, you know, give it to like sign it within 10 minutes. Otherwise, this is going to happen or whatever. You might have a chance to back out of it there. But even then, even in those situations, you never want to really risk it. So um, it pretty much applies to anyone who's got a severance package. Don't assume it's fair, even if it looks extremely generous. Give a lawyer a call. Give us a call and, and make sure your rights are obviously fully canvassed before you signing anything like that.
0: More coming up as we slide into a quick break. We continue the Employment Law Show. Hang on. Uh, for the remainder of the show, Chris Justice is your guy. You can reach out to Chris after as well at the firm and discuss your matter privately, one 855 821 help at employmentlawyer.ca. We have been talking about common mistakes made by employees. We'll get to one more of these to wrap up that list. And we're going to switch over to employers for those listening on that side of the, uh, the fence as well. Another common mistake is resignation. This has been in the news quite a bit lately, as you kind of uh, mentioned off the top of Elon Musk saying, I, right. you guys can resign if you want. I mean, it's just, it doesn't apply up here, but it's, it's, it's a completely wrong thing to do. Right. Force resignation.
1: Yeah. Force resignation. Absolutely. I mean, in the, in the Twitter example with Elon Musk, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a, it's not your typical resignation case because you're sort of being bargained with, you know, they're saying resign and we will pay you this. Uh, whereas usually it's someone just simply resigning whether they just think they want to move on to a different career or resigning because they've been pushed out, you know, maybe in the in the context of a toxic workplace. You know, I've mentioned the bullying and the harassment earlier on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are definitely times in an employment relationship when you know the environments become so toxic to the point where someone says, Yeah, I just can't take it anymore anymore and I want to quit. Um, and while that's completely understandable and, and may not necessarily be a problem. It's just always a risk, you know, when an employee says something officially as far as a resignation is concerned. You know, a lot of times, for example, I have people who come to me, they're in a toxic work environment, and they send their employer a resignation letter or a resignation email. Now, the resignation letter or email, however, doesn't reference anything to do with the toxicity of the workplace. It just simply says, you know. I'm resigning, I'm giving you my two weeks and I'm out of here. And again, the employer may or may not know the basis or the reason behind the resignation. Um, clearly the email wouldn't indicate as much uh, and it can be a huge issue potentially. Again, even if it is more of a forced resignation. Um, so it's, it's, it's advisable to avoid as an employee uh, at least without first talking to a lawyer to, to send or to signal to your employer that you're quitting whether it's in advance uh, or ahead of time or, or immediately. Um, usually it's only in the most extreme situations that it would be uh, recommended to do something like that. And as I say, even then you want to be careful how you craft a resignation letter or resignation note. Um, Because if it's not an extreme situation, which definitely possible, a lot of people, again, will come to me and say, this workplace is toxic. And I may say to them, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think it's going to rise to the level of you you getting compensation. So there's also a difference between, you know, a toxic workplace that would realistically lead to compensation versus a workplace that's uncomfortable um, that that may not be viewed in the same way as something more egregious. Uh, You know, there's, there's an example I had a while back where I was um, talking with someone who gave their employer an ultimatum where they said, you know, I want to raise in three weeks or else I quit. And the employee in that situation continued to work for those three weeks, but did not get a raise. Then the employer told him that they had accepted his offer of resignation. Um, He then later brought an action in court, basically saying that he was entitled to damages, but the court found that that person had resigned, uh, was not entitled to damages and, you know, simply got nothing. And then even got affected after the fact because, When somebody resigns, if it's a legitimate resignation uh, and not something, let's say, that's forced, then the uh, the issue of employment insurance benefits comes up because you can't generally get employment insurance benefits if you resign. So there's sort of a more of a knock on effect there, which is just all the more reason why people have to be careful, you know, about the the resignation itself, that word, Um, because in a way it could be a constructive dismissal if someone's forced out. But it's just not always that easy, and it could make things a lot more difficult. And, again, if you are seen as having resigned, you get zero, whereas if you had been constructively dismissed or if there was a a different situation where maybe a resignation letter did not apply, you could be getting a month or more for every year of service on your way out. Um, I do want to mention one thing, though. Mm -hmm. Um, for what it's worth is when somebody resigns from their job, they are going to have a lot more difficulty in getting severance and and getting EI benefits for the reasons I've mentioned. But if there are human rights issues at play, uh, again, you are actually still able to pursue human rights damages in a resignation case if you can make out the fact that there was discrimination in the workplace. Because, of course, if someone brings a human rights complaint, they've got to prove that at least, you know, there, there's something there that they were they were treated differently based on a protected ground. So you could have somebody quit a job but still establish that their human rights were violated. Now, again, they're not going to be necessarily able to get severance, but they could get some human rights damages uh, as I say for whatever that's worth. But still, you know, before you think about sending an email or a note to your employer saying I quit, give us a call and Want to make sure you know everything's addressed appropriately.
0: Yeah, that pretty much uh that pretty much works for everything we've talked about up to this point, especially on the show mm-hmm. uh, today is you know, reach out to Chris anytime before you make any sort of move on your own, thinking, Oh, I heard on a show, blah, blah, blah. Just make that right. phone call and get some uh, some clarification. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at employment lawyer.ca. I'm gonna switch over to the other side of the table now, Chris. That is common mistakes made by employers. Number one, workplace harassment. Tell me about
1: that. Big one. Yeah. And again, I've, I've, I've spoken about this before on other shows, you know, not taking workplace harassment seriously or as seriously as an employer should. Um, it's, it's unfortunately a very common mistake and, and could also be very costly to a lot of companies. You know, as, as I've said before, many times employers have a very strict legal duty when faced with a harassment complaint to investigate the issue and take the appropriate action. An employer can discipline problematic employees. An employer can provide sensitivity training. An employer can relocate workers or maybe, again, going back to that scenario where you're being harassed or bullied by your boss. There may be a possibility that, you know, you can report to somebody different. uh, So there could be some rejigging there. Um, But generally speaking, again, employers have to take these complaints seriously and respond immediately. And you know another problematic thing I see is penalizing someone or, or subjecting someone to some form of retaliation or reprisal just by virtue of them bringing a complaint forward, um, which just further compounds matters. And unfortunately, a lot of these employers don't heed this advice. They just think it's easier to sort of sweep the problem under the rug rather than deal with it head on. They hope that maybe the employee will back off of it or change their mind or get convinced hmm. that you know, they're not going to pursue it and that it just gets resolved without any intervention. And that's just, you know, simply not acceptable. Um, again, it has to be investigated. And if an employer doesn't investigate a harassment complaint, if an employer doesn't take the appropriate action, that could be seen as the employer condoning that behavior, especially if it's been brought to light. Not not to mention the fact that employers generally have a duty under law to, you know, deal with these concerns. So they're then a potentially breaching Occupational health and safety legislation, you know, they're breaching stuff that's aimed at um, preventing harassment from from even occurring in the workplace whatsoever. Um, And then you even have a further knock on effect if you don't handle that situation well as an employer, the employee may start suffering medical issues. They might have to take a stress leave, a medical leave. Now you're involving human rights concerns back into the equation again again. And it just snowballs and gets bigger and bigger for employers and could be, as I say, extremely costly. So if you're an employer, you got to deal with these things promptly, appropriately. And if you don't know how to do that, give us a call. This is the Employment Law Show. Stick around.
0: Yeah, but we're back at it. Talking about common mistakes made by employers. This time we did employees. Uh, Jim, how you doing, pal? Go ahead.
1: Not bad. Just wondering, if, you, if you're if you in the union, does the union supersede other Standard, um, I guess.
0: Common law. Common law? Yeah.
1: Workplace laws? Okay. And then that's sort of a general. If you get caught working while they're on strike and they want to boot you, can they touch your pension that you have with them? Or is that yours? Okay, so two parts. So I'll answer the first question. So I think your first question was, does the fact that someone's in a union... Sort of prevent them maybe from going down different avenues or paths versus others. Is that what you're asking? No, no. Did I you, think well, so. Well, we weren't supposed to be working. We got caught working. Sorry, what was that? When they're on strike, we weren't supposed to work, but we are caught working oh right oh okay well first of all i just want to say that i specialize only in non-unionized matters but if you have a job you're working uh, in a unionized position and the expectation is that you perform duties in a certain capacity and then you're found to be working in a different capacity then yes generally speaking there could be of course a conflict now, the fact that you're on a strike would presumably mean, though, that you're not actively working. But whether or not that gives you the right as an employee to work elsewhere, you know, that, that's going to depend on a lot of scenarios, I would imagine. For example, this other work that you're doing, um, what happens if you're called back to work after the strike? Are you going to be able to drop that job and go back to your old job? Is there going to be a conflict? Usually when people start employment with a company, uh, the contractor or something to that effect will say that they're to devote their time energy and resources to that job um, But at the same time, I mean as we know people can have multiple jobs so um, it, It's hard for me to say just generally speaking whether or not that's permissible But I do think that you could run into some issues depending on if you're called back and how that's going to affect You know the other job, right? So that would be number one the, the other thing I would say just because you're, you're asking in the context of the union would be to get in touch with your union representative. Um, because there could be something in your contract, there could be something in a collective bargaining agreement that, that your union has with the employer that could speak to these issues. So I'd refer to your union rep to begin with. Yeah. Um, now your your second question, so can you just remind me what that was? If, if they decide that they want to give me the boot, my pension is still my pension with them, right? It just stops at this point. Well, yeah. So again, I would say, if, if somebody is contributing or has been contributing to a pension over the years, and they lose their job, generally speaking, that doesn't mean that you lose all those contributions, you're still going to be entitled to what you've put into the pension, what your employers put into the pension, you may not be entitled to anything beyond that point, if your employment's terminated. Um, but but it's not to say that in, in most cases you then lose everything that you have put in up to that point in time. Um, I, I will say, though, as well, that if you've got a pension plan or there's a policy booklet of some sort that talks about the pension, that talks about maybe what happens to your pension in the event of a termination or in the event of a resignation, um, you may also want to refer to that plan as well for further guidance. Awesome.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Thanks, no Jimmy. Worries. Appreciate Thank you. that. And yeah, generally it's, uh, you know, uh, union matters are outside, great advice, but union matters generally outside your purview as far as, well, any employment lawyer for that matter, you're, you're bound by the, the CBA, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like it, when it comes to unionized stuff, there's generally three things I'll say. Number one, mm-hmm. you've got a local union rep. So if you've got any questions about your employment, that should be a first point of contact. Uh, number two, whether it's in discussions with your local union rep or not, again, there's going to be a collective bargaining agreement between the union and the employer. So that's going to detail a lot of information that you may need to know as far as, can I do this? Can I do that? What's the process? And then whether you unionized or not, you know, if there's a contract or something at play that you signed that has terms of employment in it, then of course, you're going to want to refer back to that as well.
0: Let's uh, wrap it up for uh, today with an email from Cindy says, Hey, Chris, I was just temporarily laid off by my employer of 10 years and was told they do not need my consent to do this and that the law supports them in this regard. They've not given me any specific return date. How long do I have to wait? Am I guaranteed a position upon my return? Uh, What are my options? says Cindy.
1: Yeah, so a big misconception that people have is when their employer comes to them and says, We're putting you on a layoff. It's temporary. We fully intend on calling you back. We don't know when, but we intend on doing so. Bear with us. A lot of people think that employers just generally can do that. You know, an employer themselves will say that the legislation allows them to do that, that there's a section here that says this. And again, a lot of employees may think, okay, it seems like they're right. I've looked it up too. It speaks to the the ability to someone for someone to lay me off. But don't think that. So so employers do not have the inherent or the general right to lay you off unless it's with your consent, even if it's for a legitimate reason. And, and this was a huge issue, um, you know, when the onset of the pandemic started with COVID. A lot of people were being laid off um, upwards of two years. And they talk to me and I say, well, nope. that's actually potentially a constructive dismissal. And you can go after that company for severance as though you've been let go. So don't think that they can do this. Don't also think you have a position to return to, but definitely want to talk to a lawyer. Talk to me first. I'll let you know what your options are and, and go from there.
0: And we are done for another show. Reaching out to Chris now, totally, totally capable of doing that. 1-855-821-5900. Help at employmentlawyer.ca and the website all the time, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca as well. We'll catch you next time, Employment Law Show.